This is Bonjour Chai, the Mixed Use Does Not Lead to Mixed Dancing Edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Montreal. What? We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we discuss affordability, Jewish neighborhoods, and all things housing with Zev Mandelbaum. But first, uh, Alana, you're here. I know. I'm really everywhere. Nobody can keep track of me anymore. The timing worked out. You, we are recording from one single recording desk. For the first time ever. This is momentous. It really is. Um, yeah. And maybe for the last time in a very long time. Ah, who I knows? Know. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, how are things? Good. Yeah, I was supposed to come in on Friday because I have an unveiling this weekend. It's the season of unveilings. Yeah, yeah, so many unveilings. Uh, probably more for you than for me since you're a rabbi. Yep, yep. But um, uh, I booked a voiceover gig, so I last minute changed my train ticket and uh, hopped on the next morning at 6.30 is when the train left. Did Came in a few hours later, went to the voice recording booth, did my commercial, <laughs> and uh, here I am. Now I'm here for the whole week. Well, uh, it's good that you're here. Uh, I'm glad that we're recording together. Finally, it's uh, it's good to be doing this. And uh, I want to ask you something uh, really interesting. Have you seen this video of this rabbi um, with the, the crying uh, toddler yeah. um, on Rosh Hashanah? The Rabbi Amy Garas of the uh, Pasadena Jewish Temple and Center uh, had a brief viral moment over the holidays. Um, she's uh, Tell us about this video and uh, what your thoughts are. So the video essentially shows uh, this female rabbi at home um, and she's leaning, right? Mm-hmm. That she's would be reading the, the Haftorah. She's reading yeah. the Haftorah. I, I don't remember all the technical terms. She's reading the Haftorah and uh, she's sitting in her house because it's COVID. And then her daughter, who's quite young, I would say, I don't know, probably two, three years old, something <laughs> like that, uh, comes in and starts yelling and crying and screaming. And then she tries to keep going with the Haftorah and then eventually picks up her daughter and sings to her and then brings her to the fridge for a snack um, and she somehow manages to get through. And at the end, one of the other rabbis at her show um, compliments her on how you know smoothly she handled it and, and how empowering it was to see her do her job and be a mom at the same time. Yeah. Um, what was your take on that? You know what is interesting? Because I heard about this video and at first I thought, oh, wow, like this will be such an interesting, empowering moment. But as I was watching it, I thought to myself, I don't know how I would feel if this would happen on the long term. I think it felt very, very representative to me of the beginning of the pandemic where everyone was just getting used to the fact that we were suddenly at home all the time and all the things that we normally did outside the house, we were doing inside the house. But if this was reality for the rest of my life and the person that I'm watching do, you know, the Habdora was constantly getting distracted and bringing their computer and showing me around their house, it just kind of took me out. And I felt like it was like watching more of like, a comedy sketch than being in show. Yeah, I mean, I, I was impressed. It was very impressive. With and she her did skill. the best that she could. And, uh, you know. Being a mom and trying to balance, to juggle both things. I, I thought that the cute part was when she's like reading in the Haftorah tone what she was telling to her kid, right? She was trying to like not break <laughs> character, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is kind of, I don't remember the exact words, but it was like, you know. Ah, would some you, candy. <laughs> would you like some candy? Would you <laughs> like some milk? Or would you like some juice? Yeah. Right? 
okay, it takes creativity, it takes thought to get to get to that point. Um, I, I don't know. I found that it really highlighted for me the nature of sacred space and sacred times and sacred moments, and 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 that. Um, what people come to me as a rabbi to, to lead a life cycle. I'm not a pulpit rabbi. Uh, I, I don't do that right now. Um, but when I'm doing a life cycle for them, when, when I was in a, in a pulpit, my job as a spiritual, you know, facilitator, if I'm going to be really technical, I'm, not, I'm not a leader, whatever it is, if I'm going to be a leader, whatever it is, is to really be present and fully present in the moment for these people but mm-hmm. this isn't like you know the monday morning staff meeting and your kid comes in and needs you know like sure. a juice box this is not um you know somebody who is just assembling you know work you know putting stuff together you know manufacturing and then their kid comes in and, and they have to stop put put their thing down and move over whatever it Turn is and so off. it's not pro- it's not as productive the productivity goes down whatever that might right. be right it's a different it's a it's completely different. i actually yeah. had a hard time with and I know that, yes, you're immunocompromised. That's what she said, that she, right. she, she couldn't be in, in services with everybody else. But, like, create a space that shows that you are in this entering into something sacred with everybody else in the congregation, right? I felt like I'm in her kitchen. I see piles of stuff. And, yes, you're a mom and you're young, whatever. And, like, yeah. you're overwhelmed. And I've been there. But if you are there as a rabbi for people, you're. I, I expect you to really be focused, right? You're an actor. Like, I... Would you imagine um, if the lead actor in a play couldn't find childcare and they brought their kid backstage and then middle of the performance, the kid just walks on stage? I have a funny story about that, actually. Oh, wow. Okay, tell me. (laughs) I don't have children and it wasn't someone from from our cast, but I did a touring show of this kind of Disney-style kids production and we toured across Canada. And I don't remember what city it was in, but I'll never forget this moment. We had uh, a big closing number at the end of the show, and there was a castle on stage with a door. <laughs> and at the end, just by total coincidence, we all are we're we're in a line, and half of us are outstretching our arms um, towards this door, and the other half are outstretching their other arms. And right, almost on cue, this little kid bursts out of the castle. <laughs> Starts like, like puts her thought hands up. Thought that they were up, in the show. But yeah, yeah thought, thought that she was in the show. This like six year old girl raises her hands in the air like she's like the star that was waiting to come out. And we we honestly could not stop laughing. And we were in the middle of this show with lots of people watching. I'll never forget that moment. Yeah, but that. It was and then the funny. mom had to go through yeah. the crowd and pick her kid off the stage. It was. But it was cute. a kids show. It was a kids show. Yeah. If that happened during, you know, Ibsen. Or Shakespeare. No, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a Broadway musical that is sad at the end. Or, I don't know. <laughs> Many. <laughs> Whatever it might be, you know, yeah. in the middle of, uh, you know, a, a really, really pivotal Dark. moment yeah. in Hamilton or something like that. And a kid shows up on. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. People, no, it'd be distracting. Not only be distracting, people would be pissed. They'd be like, you ruined this moment of theater, right? right? I, I want my money back. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, and I think that there shouldn't be that sort of excuse for rabbis to have that. I, I have stayed home many 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 weeks because my wife is the one who is doing those moments in synagogue and couldn't have the kids in in shul with her and when they're young they they just you know so i was like okay fine i'm not gonna go to shul i'm gonna come to shul much later knowing that the sermon is done so that she can be focused and she can have this ability to like lead people and i was really turned off by this idea that you can have a rabbi reading haftorah um on zoom in a non-sacred feeling space and then have this interruption your job is to 
do something to make sure that and we've all been there right the, the, uh, yeah, the, the I, iPad dies and you didn't think that it was going to and I think it's also like not to get too much into the wokeism but to get into it I feel like there's a certain amount of privilege to assume that all people have those resources maybe she's a single mother maybe she couldn't afford to have a sitter you know so like what would you have done if, if you were in a situation where you couldn't have if you were in that video let's say and that happened to you and you literally had nobody that you could so have I would not get in that situation so I what would, you would just reject it and say no I'm not I'm not going to read the Haftorah this year I can't I, there's no, and I know I'm supposed to but either I'm sorry I'm stuck but yeah. I'm not uh, prepared like part the basic job requirement is what I'm trying to say mm-hmm. of having this spiritual leadership is to be fully fully present right, right? and if you can't do that if you, if you go to somebody and you say uh, well the job is on you know you know 150 miles away I don't have a car and there's no other way to get there well it's your fault right you should you know that you should make it that I can get to the job right we just don't hire you if you don't have the ability to fulfill the basic job requirements I'm sorry right you have to you have to step away from that whether it's for the day because you can't have the childcare, or whether it's don't get hired because we can't we can't help you can't like do this thing for us Hmm. I remember uh, being turned down for a job because there was one Shabbat right that they I wasn't able to work they were like every other Shabbat is totally fine Mm -hmm. but the big event that we're working towards is a Sunday and we know that the from our experience of having done this in the previous 10 years that we've run this event the 72 hours leading up to the event and the event is on a Sunday are critical and there's no way that you can miss the day before the event um, to work this to help make this event happen um, we cannot hire you because of that one day and it made perfect sense to me I, I was a little pissed I was like oh, I'll try to make it work whatever but they're like no if you're coordinating this if you're making this thing happen there's no way that you cannot be here on the day before and if you can't do mm-hmm. it then we have to find somebody else and that's that's just par for what you know should be happening and as a rabbi we should be aware of that and and again it's not I get that you are you, you may be a single mom. You may not be. Your your childcare may have not showed up that day. You're in an emergency situation. You have to know where your limitations are, and mm. we can't allow this. Well, we want everybody to do it to come in the way of well, whatever limitations. Right? It's all any anything goes. We we want to make it out. It's an interesting you. take because it seems like most. I didn't read through all the comments, but the ones that were highlighted on the side of the video all seemed very positive. Well, and it was what a are you lot of say? she's a hero um, and, and all that. So it's just interesting to absolutely. Hear but what are you going to go and say like you know? Oh, you're gonna you're gonna <laughs> go on the video of the synagogue's website and say oh, like this goodness. is horrible. This is evil. Like you're a bad no, person. No, no. Um, but people were sharing it because you know I, I actually I'd been hearing rumors about this video. I didn't know what it was until I actually watched it. But pe- I've heard people reference it over the high holidays about this amazing woman. So, you know, to each their own. Yeah, I guess. Um, you know, that, again, it's my take, my my, my approach to it. Um, I think that maybe there's, yeah, I don't know. That's uh, that was my reaction to it. I didn't didn't really have a, a strong. F- positive feeling about it although Fair like enough. I said as a parent like 5,000 stars right this is like <laughs> awesome best parenting moment of the year like I'm not gonna say worst because there are many many worse ones um, but really not an ideal rabbinic moment as a rabbi uh, before we move on to our next topic let's hear from our sponsor Alana did you see this thing I was wearing no do you know what it is uh it looks it, like describe some it to us of- so it's silver looking. Mm-hmm. It kind of looks like a bone. Yeah. Uh, and it's a bracelet mm-hmm. type cuff. Yeah, sure. 
Did I, I, I would do describe well? that. Yeah, that's good. I think uh, Deacon and Francis is one of those names that you keep popping up in your uh, in your ad for for Atelier Lou. Yeah. Um, this is made by Deacon and Francis. It's silver. It's uh, ah, oh, there's they call some it, words inside. It says Deacon and Francis. Oh, thank you. I thought it was engraved. Like I'll no, be fine, gold. It should. Um, <laughs> but I saw it at Atelier Lou when I was there over the summer. Uh, I'm there often enough, and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. It's a cuff that looks like a femur. It's designed to like. It looked like a bone, and it has the ends of the bones on on both both sides, and I thought it was kind of cool. And people keep asking me, "What does it mean? Where's it from?" But like, I don't know. I thought it was beautiful. I have other meanings that I can attach to it, and I can ascribe to it. Uh, ask me offline. We we can come up with that. Um, <laughs> there you go. We can but, do a Vartor on but, the meaning of the bone around but your wrist. Actually, Alu has lots of amazing pieces. And uh, where are they? And where can you find these pieces? So Atelier Lou is based actually really close to here in Montreal, Quebec. And uh, if you're listening to this right now and you want to check out their supply, you can use the code BON18 and get 10% off your order. AtelierLou.com. AtelierLou.com. Check it out. Uh, they've been a long time friend of the Chai and uh, you should support them. So... It's become a cliche that housing prices have reached astronomical heights. Memes about millennials working harder than boomers and not being able to afford to buy what previous generations could are no longer funny. They're just rage tweeted by would-be homeowners who are done with renting but are living the affordability crisis daily. This was a major point of the recent election, and it actually hits the Jewish community particularly hard. And with us to talk about this is Zev Mandelbaum, president and CEO of Altree Developments. Zev, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. Welcome. Can you um, get us started by just giving a bit of an overview of like how we got to this point? You know, how did we get to the point where uh, it used to be very affordable? People used to be able to buy a house and now we're just, you know, we're stuck somewhere and we don't know what to do. Sure. Absolutely. Um, the answer to that is, is there's no one specific cause that caused it to become so unaffordable. I think the fact of so many different things hitting the housing market over and over from many different angles have added to that. So let's talk about a few basic things. Number one is housing itself, the idea of living in a city as opposed to living elsewhere. You can live in the suburbs, but people want to live in a good city and a city that's good ends up growing because that's proximity to jobs and the Jewish community specifically, it's community orientated because you're connected to your shuls, your synagogues, your schools and the daily life, which is so much more than it is in you know other communities. So the first thing is, yes, absolutely 100%, there's a crisis. The crisis itself is part of our own problems. It's, it's, it's a figment of what we've created because we need community. Jews gravitate to community and healthy mindsets gravitate to community. It keeps you from feeling alone. It keeps you entertained. It keeps you connected and it keeps you feeling alive. So that creates the need for community. Why housing is unaffordable in the city of Toronto is a very good reason. Number one is there's a very high supply, a very high demand with a very low supply. So the demand is high for the reasons we spoke of. Also, the fact that Toronto is a great city, the fact that it's a clean city, a safe city, and overall a city that is welcoming for all demographics. So you feel safe, you feel secure, you feel good. That's why you want to live in Toronto. But the supply, where's the supply? Well, the two issues affecting the affordable housing on the supply side is number one is to do with supply itself and number two to do with the other issues that are surrounding calling it the ancillary cost which is your construction cost obviously but more importantly that is that's a supply demand factor it's the government charges so we have a supply issue where the government creates time and time again barriers through its bureaucratic approach through the red tape to be able to bring houses to market 
Now, in another city, if you would go into New Jersey, for example, six months, the whole thing from beginning to end is the zoning process. In Toronto, it can take three years to get a project approved, whether it be mid-rise, high-rise, or a low-rise. Why is that? Well, you have nimbyism, strong nimbyism of not-in-my-backyard philosophy of a lot of the people who are saying, hey, I just don't want development in my neighborhood. You have councillors who pay homage to that nimbyism because it helps them with their constituencies. You also have city planning, which is, has a lot of red tape and a lot of barriers. And because we're, we are who we are as the government we are, we just create more and more barriers. And that restricts supply. So the planning process is very long. Now, when things are long, that adds cost. There are land loans. There are things that happen when you have a piece of property through the process. You add cost after cost after cost. And the longer things take, the more expensive it is for that project. And the other thing is, is, of course, is then you have development charges, you have taxes, you have fees. And every year the development charges go up and every year the fees go up. And today, a typical condo or home price, about 30% of it, can be all government taxes and development charges. So why is gas so expensive? Well, 35% of your gas bill is usually government tax. And the same goes for housing. The government sees an easy opening. House prices is rising. Tax, 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 tax. Go ahead. Take your Section 37s, your development charges, your HSTs. Go ahead with your building permits. Increase your fees for every little thing possible. What that does is it adds cost to the product. Import fees, export fees. You know, uh, all those tariffs that you put on lumber and, and, and every item that is in the supply chain. When you restrict the supply chain, that adds costs. So what can happen is, you can't lower it because our profit margins are, are the same no matter what. They're mandated by the bank. What happens is you have to pass that on to the consumer, to the purchaser. And that's why housing in Toronto keeps rising because we keep putting costs into that. So those are the two reasons that we have. So to be fair, it's not just Toronto. I mean, Montreal has this, Ottawa yeah. has this, Vancouver has this yeah. issue. This is an issue across the country where all of these issues are coming together in this like perfect storm. Um, yeah, the issues in the perfect storm is that the government across the board between all these cities is very, very slow to bring product to market. You know, the more bureaucratic, the, most social, the more government restrictions you have, the more development charges you're charging for, the more you're charging for permits, the more the supply chain is broken, the more costs you are putting on top of that housing and that's what's supply and that's what's just increasing the cost so this the demand is there it's a great place to live everyone wants to live there but the supply is really low and the mm -hmm. cost of bringing that supply to market is is astronomically higher than it is south of the border so um going back to the jewish community you were talking about how living in these jewish communities is so important for us to be, to bring that sense of connection so what what is lost, do you think, in your opinion, when Jews can't afford to live in those communities? Like, I'm, uh, I'm in my late 20s, and I know a lot of people who can't afford to live in those neighborhoods. So, so then what? Um, what is your take on that? So, that's a great question. Now, the fact that housing becomes more expensive, yes, it's a problem that can be, can be fixed with, you know, the government you know, easing up, for sure government easing and government subsidies and, and for sure government easing of all and deregulation will certainly help that. But at the end of the day, any city that's an amazing city, real estate will become more expensive by the way of the demand, by the way of the lack of supply of land. Because if it's not the cost, it's going to be the lack of supply. So what happens, and Avi, I'll answer, I'll answer Lana's question, yeah. is the propensity has to change. A wise economist once said, Manhattan was overpriced 100 years ago, it was overpriced 50 years ago, and it's overpriced today. Your propensity has to change. Do you buy or do you rent? 
Do you live in 2,500 square feet or do you live in 1,500 square feet? As cities mature, like England, England, Tokyo, Manhattan, and now Toronto too, becoming a real major player in the world, a major city, the mindset has to change. It's no longer the white picket fence with a 3,000 square foot home in the suburbs. It's now uh, right. 900. Well, I think it has condo. it has changed. I mean, most people I know are renting or have an apartment or moving to Hamilton. So, so go so, for it, Abby. So that brings up, I mean, look, I, I actually, I believe 100% what you're saying. You know, I to use a smaller example, I remember an economist saying that every parking spot in any downtown in any major city is way underpriced because if parking was properly priced, you'd have 15% of every block on street side parking should always be available, right? And that's where the, you know, you should be rising your price. So, and so housing should be in the same sort of thing. And so we're raising to the point where people can afford it. But what used to happen in the Jewish community was uh, a neighborhood would get very dense. It would get very, it would start to get unaffordable and people would move. When I've taught about Eruv, I've given classes about Eruv. I like to show in any given city that um, you can see Jewish migration based on where an Eruv shows up. Right. The people move to a new neighborhood. They put up an Eruv and they say this is becoming a new Jewish neighborhood. You have shuls there. You have schools. You have restaurants. You have takeout, whatever it is. And then people start moving there. Right. And then and then as that becomes more expensive, so you move further out. And so you start seeing right the migration going outwards based on where you see Eruvs, based on where you see Jewish things. But that doesn't seem to be happening anymore in Canada. Definitely not in Toronto. Um, definitely not in Montreal, where neighborhoods would pop up right wherever um, Jews decided, you know, this is unaffordable. We're going to move one kilometer west. We're going to start building there and we're going to make a, new, a neighborhood. That doesn't seem to be happening more. People want to still live in the same three Jewish neighborhoods. And we seem to be stuck in this cycle. Hamilton is, is, an, ex, is an exception to that, maybe. But we don't really see many other places where that's going. Where, why is there no Jewish community establishing in Oshawa to say, you know what? We're close enough to the city. You can go get your takeout. You can go to the mikveh if you want. We'll build an Arab in Oshawa. And Oshawa is going to become the next big Jewish Jewish neighborhood or and then Belleville and then Napanee or whatever it's going to be I think the answer to I can't speak for Montreal I can speak to Toronto is is that the distance and the and the relative price savings is just not worth it if you're going to Oshawa and you're buying a single detached home in relatively good condition you're still upwards of a million dollars so for a marginally better life that's still very expensive but extremely far very reliant on the on the 401 not being clogged which you know for one not being clogged is a miracle. It happened once every 40 years or 50 years like Jubilee. Um, it, it's it's just not worth it. And that's why we don't see it. But we did see in the last decade, Thornhill, boom. Whereas Thornhill was very small when I started. Thornhill Woods didn't exist 15 years ago, right? So we're seeing it, maybe not as the rapid, rapid sprawl that you would want to see. And maybe not the rapid or you know suburban sprawl that we would want, but or urban sprawl. But we definitely don't see... We definitely see it in, in, in microcosms of it. You know, you're, you saw very big communities shift. Yes, down south community that's south of Lawrence, north of Eglinton, and then the other community, which is south of Eglinton, north of St. Clair. Again, those have shifted a lot. A lot has gone to Thornhill. A lot has gone to Richmond Hill. A lot has gone to mm-hmm. Thornhill Woods, which is Thornhill Next Step 2.0. So you are seeing it. You're not seeing and to Hamilton as well, which is booming now. But you're not seeing it right to Oshawa or any of those areas because anything east or west of the city is very much reliant on a couple of highways and where the overall median price is not that much dramatically cheaper for a family to give up. Now, for someone who doesn't have the needs of the Jewish community, of community, they're willing to go there for the 20% savings, right? But what you're giving up for that 20%, the cost-benefit ratio, you're giving up an established community already. To go to some place yeah, so that's what I'm saying is that it used to be that people didn't mind establishing communities. 
And we don't see that as much anymore. And again, you're not a sociologist, but I know you have the thing. I I just got back from Florida. Miami Beach, your homes are $1.5 million. Go to Hollywood, Boca, North Miami Beach, which is 25 minutes away, right? Maybe 30 minutes max. And the homes are five, six hundred thousand dollars. So you're saying that works where where as soon as you move to an outlying region, the prices drop dramatically. But in Canada, those prices haven't dropped anywhere. Well, they drop, but not to that not forty percent of the de- of a regular house price, right? You're not right. going to Ottawa and buying a, a single detached for five hundred thousand dollars like you are in Hollywood, Florida. Mm-hmm. Right. So so going back to Thornhill, you mentioned earlier that the way to deal with uh, the changing demographics and the, and the way that things are going is by downsizing, essentially. But Thornhill doesn't have a lot of apartments, from what I saw. I, I just stayed there with relatives for a month. It's mostly homes and a lot of very large homes that are going to be very expensive unless you know you get it passed down through your family. So what, is, what do you think Thornhill is going to look like in the next 20, 30 years? It's a great thing. Now, what, what Thornhill has, again, is the migration of real estate and you know putting government intervention and all the issues that happen with development Cities need development to survive. Humanity is an evolution. It has to evolve. We have to evolve, right? The multiplier effect evolves. Jewish communities grow. We grow exponentially with our children because family is so important to us. So there is definitely going to be a need for new development along Thornhill. Don't forget, Thornhill is not old enough yet to need higher density housing yet, right? It's just starting. And as that need, then that demand grows, people will build condos. Look, the Thornhill, the Beverly, there are a lot of projects starting to pop up in Thornhill. Right. When I lived, uh, when I went to school there in Thornhill years ago, there was no Thornhill Woods. There were just big homes on, Re- on Risa or whatever that street was called with the mansions. Then all of a sudden, Thornhill Woods came with a, with a more tight, more dense life. Then the condo towers came up by the promenade around then. And now the promenade itself is being redeveloped for condo towers. So we're seeing a lot, a lot, a lot of housing. Now, what Toronto misses the most, and I think this is where the crux of where you're going, Alana, is what's called the missing middle. Yeah. The missing middle in Toronto is probably a very, and probably the most prevalent issue with housing and affordable housing in the city. And it's something that is unique to Toronto. That is, I don't know about, I'm sure I can't speak for that, but it's unique to Toronto. And I can see that many, 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 many places south of the board do not have this issue. And that is the missing middle. And that, what missing middle means is, in Toronto, you either have a low-rise house, you have sometimes you'll have a townhouse, and then you go straight to a condo. That missing middle is that three-story walk-up, that four-story walk-up, that that more fourplex, sixplex, those kind of homes. The reason why you don't have it is because 60% of the city of Toronto is zoned neighborhoods designation, which is oh, pretty much single detached or townhomes, right. rural houses. Well, I, I I know friends of mine have said that. Their problem for them these days is if they want to start a family, so many of these new buildings are mostly one-bedroom units. So it kind of exiles a lot of people that want to start a family. Correct. A fourplex and a sixplex usually will be two- and three-bedroom units, given the way that they're designed. But the zoning in the city of Toronto was never amended. And a lot of that has to do with NIMBYism. A lot of it's political. But 60% of the city of Toronto is zoned neighborhoods. The mixed-use designations are only on the major streets. There is no middle zoning that allows you to do those six plexes and eight plexes. Well, you'll have your three bedrooms and your four bedrooms with your very big terraces and some little outdoor space at the back where you could raise a family. That missing middle does find itself in every other major city from Chicago to New York to Miami to everywhere. Well, you'll see multiple mixed use housing communities. And that's important. It's important for Jewish community too, because what we need in life is mixed income communities. We need communities with all types of incomes in it. So that everyone can live together. That's what makes a good community a community, mm-hmm. not just a divide between the rich and the poor. Right, and that's what we have now. I mean, you look at 
to, to give the example you have of Bathurst and Lawrence, right? Uh, a young couple gets married. They move to the what we call the dorm, right? 120 Shelbourne. But there's not a lot. <laughs> you never heard it called that before? No, no, no but I can res- I'm looking at it right now, so I can resonate. <laughs> it's a dorm. And then and my sister lived there. And then what happens, <laughs> right? When you're done with that, you, hopefully you can afford to live on Glengrove, right? And there you're getting two houses torn down because you're putting up a big house. And thankfully, you know, like my sister lives there. That's great. But for the people that aren't ready to make that leap, you need something else in between. So what in your mind? I mean, you are a fan of, of uh, some sort of urban density, not just the middle, but like you seem to, to, to recognize the value of dense housing in some way and not just single family. What in your mind would then be an ideal um, Jewish neighborhood? What does that look like if you're going to you know, you're given the keys. What's that? There's a new, there's a huge new development opening up in the mi- middle of the city, right? Where the, the airport used to be. Yeah. My friend's working on that project. He's moving to Toronto. Let's say you're given the keys to that and you say, perfect, we're building an Arab. We're going to make this a Jewish neighborhood, um, not exclusively, but whatever it is. What does a good Jewish neighborhood look like? And how should we be thinking about this for the future? So to me, the most important thing in a Jewish community not is not the shul. But the most important thing in the Jewish It's the sushi place. It's the sushi place. <laughs> Oh, the bakery, right? No, the most important. You mean the pizza slash sushi slash <laughs> yes, exactly. Chinese slash. <laughs> That's so true. Um, the perfect the perfect storm of a Jewish community is a centralized park. Okay. It's a park because it's where you go on Shabbat afternoon. It's where the kids go after school. It's where the kids make friends, and it's where the kids make friends from different genders, different age groups. I have the benefit of living on a park, and I have three kids and a dog, and I have a very big dog, and my dog loves the park, and my kids love the park. And what that allows my kids and my, my dog is not just to have other friends that are dogs and kids, but it allows them to interact with many different families, many different age groups, many different genders, and many different spectrums of religion. Mm-hmm. And that creates a good Jewish community. In the, from, I think from like, well, it depends on the year because Toronto's weather is so <laughs> unpredictable, but April until October 30th, you cannot get the kids out of the park. Mm-hmm. They are there day in and day out. And then the mothers come and then the fathers come. And then I play catch with my neighbor. And you know what? Maybe I'll bring a coffee in the morning for a walk around mm-hmm. the park. So for me, the park is really where it's centered, especially in Toronto, where the winter months are so dark and lonely. Those those spring and summer months and fall months are so integral to the community building. And it's what brings everybody together. You know, the shul used to be that many years ago. I don't think the shul has the same impact as it used to. Um, for various reasons. I mean, we spent hours on that, but that to me, our community is the park. It's where the mothers sit and the kids yeah, sit. And the I never really sit. thought of it, of it that way, but it's true. Like I had the park that I grew up in, in Dollard, and then I had the park in Hampstead when I visited my grandparents. And it's true. A lot of my best memories are associated with parks. Mm-hmm. I never thought of that before. That's why you take the developer to, to get to give you that there you insight. Go. Thank you, Zach. So you build a park in the middle. You put up some shoals. You put up an arrow. What is housing? How do how do we how how can we be more thoughtful about housing? So I, I mean, if I had a, the the choice to build what I would want to build, I want to build a fourplex, right? A fourplex. Fourplexes into infinity. Just keep going with. Well, fourplexes. you know, no, you can't have one type of housing that defeats the purpose. But a fourplex can build you a fifteen hundred square foot three bedroom unit which is very comfortable to live in. You can get the rooftops for the top two units and you can get the ground floor for the top two bottom units so that everybody has outdoor space. So, I mean, the perfect housing to me, it's made out of wood, it's not, it's not concrete, there's no elevators. There's four units, two on the bottom, two on top with a common door entry. 
And what that does is it creates a strong sense of community because you have a shared parking, but you also have what's wonderful is, is each person gets outdoor space. They each get a, either get a backyard or a rooftop. And that allows them to be able to breathe. It's 1,500 square feet, three bedrooms. It's not that costly to build, so that it could be it could be something that could be built. Unfortunately, zoning doesn't usually allow it in the city of Toronto. It's very hard to build in Toronto. Um, if I had my druthers, I'd, I'd build lots of that because I think that's perfect for the Jewish community. Um, and then that's what I would would want to build if I had the choice to build whatever housing need I think Jewish community needs. Because imagine someone in their late twenties to late to late thirties in that range, right? If they're buying a fifteen hundred square foot fourplex unit and they're spending seven hundred thousand dollars on it, right? That means that their combined family income of one hundred twenty five thousand dollars can support that mortgage, which is reasonable. I mean, you know, it's still high, but it's reasonable. It's achievable. It's where, you know, the dad or mom has a one, ha one has a leading job and one has maybe a part time job and combined income can support that. So I, I think that's something that, that, you know, the city should need and benefit from if I had my choice in housing. Um, in terms of the other thing that I think the city is missing and if I have my, again, my ability to build it, I, I want to integrate some commercial uses into those neighborhoods. So in Toronto, you have to go to Bathurst Street to get something to drink or eat or to buy, which doesn't support local business. But in many other cities, you'll have your corner store within the neighborhood's community. The bottom of, of, of a house or a corner that's in a residential neighborhood may have a, 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 a dentistry office or a coffee shop or whatever other store, a barber shop. And that allows us to have jobs, which is what's very important, is that it allows us to have that, that ancillary jobs that we can't otherwise have. So yeah, maybe you know the guy lives on top and downstairs he has a coffee shop and it's in the neighborhood. So he's not making a fortune, it's not his primary job, but he definitely has the ability to continue making surplus income and other jobs and other opportunities. Very, very difficult today for anybody to open up a business, a Jewish business in specific. Look at the restaurants. There's so few kosher restaurants. They're just, and they disappear. What are you talking about? <laughs> all I go when I see Toronto is I see kosher restaurant after kosher restaurant. <laughs> just go down Bathurst all the way down. There's way more there than here. Yeah. yeah. But well, down Bathurst, okay. I remember taking the Bathurst bus down. I was amazed at how many kosher places there were back to back to back to back all the way down to St. Clair and maybe further. Um, yeah. I have a question in my mind, which is, I guess, hypocritical of myself. But I'm just questioning how the Jewish community in, in Toronto is going to continue to prosper if the prices keep rising. And this is coming from someone who literally just moved to Toronto last month. You know, if, if the prices keep rising, I just don't see why people would want to continue investing in a city, even even though there is such a strong Jewish community. I feel like maybe there'll be other people. And, and I, I'm an artist. I make significantly less than other peers of mine who have, you know, higher profile jobs. Um, I, I, I just question how long it will last. Do you think there's a chance that things will drop at a certain point or do you foresee it going up and up and up for the next while. I, I don't know about up and up and up. I mean, that, that you know, I don't have that crystal ball, but definitely I don't see things dropping at all anytime soon. Um, definitely they're going to go up in the short term. I don't know, in the, in the long term. He's a developer. If he thought it was going down, he'd be doing something else right now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You, well, uh, you bring up a fine point, Alana, about the fine arts. And I don't know what kind of artist you are, but I am an art collector and I can tell you something about art. And culture and how important art and culture is to communities and that is more people like you in this world oh <laughs> Thank no you. really though the uh, the arts are so undervalued i'm in the performing arts but keep going well the performing arts uh, you know i go to florida a lot to see shows because there's not a whole lot of shows here these days but these days it's coming back so god willing 
But, you know, culture is huge. Performing arts is huge. Arts is huge. And unfortunately, you know, given the pandemic, given the, the, the nature, we have lost sight of that. You know, I remember the days when, when school plays were integral and were the biggest thing alive. And today, um, school plays are, are on virtual if they are existent, right? So I, I do think that is, um, that is a big problem. I don't think that relates to the city. I think the city that has more culture will attract more people. I think part of what makes a great city is culture. And the fine art is what is what makes it amazing. And that's why people live in New York or Williamsburg. Or don't forget, Williamsburg looked like crap 10 years ago. And today, Williamsburg yeah. is the hottest place on <laughs> earth, right? That's my original point, is that people, neighborhoods do migrate. Yeah. But for some reason, like you said, in But Canada, they, they migrate to culture, right? So they migrate to Williamsburg. Because... Jewish communities migrate to sushi. Yeah, no, Jewish communities migrate to, to cheap. But to take a... To, 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 or bay. Yeah, whatever it is. to good cities. And, and, and obviously, right... You know, Jews will always migrate to cheaper real estate because they have more kids and more need for housing. But communities and, and cities migrate towards culture. So I vote we pay artists more and then we'll solve the housing crisis. No, but to your point, we're, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something. To your point, Alana, is we're involved in a project in New Jersey called Jersey City. So we're working on a neighborhood which is called Mana Contemporary right now, and it exists. And we're building 477 rental units across from this with a guy um, by the name Moshe Mana. And if you Google it, is a home for 200 artists and we have their displays and we have galleries and we have we have big names like Igor Ozeri and, and Richard Meyer who are there and we do shootings um, of different shoot photo shoots and whatnot and the idea is really to bring artists to New Jersey where it's much cheaper and more affordable but yet create them we're paying those artists to be there right that sounds amazing I'd sign up if you build one in Toronto. We started with culture and that's what's important I believe to create a nucleus of uh, so city. Essentially, what you're saying is find a lot of fourplexes with a park around it um, and access to commercial spaces. And um, we, we should be able to, like, work towards those spaces and work thinking about, you know, creative. Because I actually think that we should be actively looking for places where we can be moving towards and saying, here is, you know, the next step in Jewish neighborhoods. And it might be somewhere that is not so close, but saying, you know, have some faith. You have two young kids now, but within a few years, right, this could be a thriving neighborhood and you can make it affordable for yourself. Well, we should also be lobbying the government on our, on our well, I was going to say for for lot splitting and you know increased zoning from residential homes to fourplexes and, and other forms as well okay so zoning and uh, is, is big um, what's the last uh, as, a, as a last closer um, what's the tip that you get what's the question you get asked the most from people looking to like say oh my god it's so expensive I can't afford it what's the question you get the most and what's the tip that you offer um, the mo uh, that you wish you can actually tell people but they're not actually asking that question what's the smarter question behind that the smarter question by the question I get asked the most is where to buy next oh, that makes sense and then how, what do you answer my answer is that Toronto is a demographic where almost 200 languages are spoken on the streets of Toronto every day and neighborhoods are made up of Toronto. Toronto is made up of multiple, multiple neighborhoods. And that's what it's all about. It's about different neighborhoods. And that's what makes it unique is that it's just not one autonomous, monotonous sure. city. So find the neighborhood that speaks to you because that's where urban sprawl is happening in Toronto, in different neighborhoods. And neighborhoods are changing and evolving. So find the neighborhood that's unique to you, that has your fingerprint on it. Move there and you will see it boom. Excellent. I like it. Zeb Mandelbaum, thank you so much uh, for joining us and uh, thanks for the tips and we will um, hopefully uh, be living in a Jewish neighborhood um, for uh, the foreseeable future. All the best, everyone. Thanks. Have a great one.
And now we're up to our Nachas of the Week, uh, where we talk about something interesting and uh, happy that has made us uh, feel good about the stuff the past week. Alana, what's your Nachas? Uh, I have two, because one of them felt a little bit too promo-y, and I feel like the last few Nachases of mine have been very promotional, but it feels like a huge Nachas, so I'll start with that one. Um, if you are subscribed to the newsletter or follow uh, the CJN on Facebook, you may have noticed that I now have a weekly column at the CJN called The Jewish Nomad, and I am very much living out my nomadic ways by already being in a different city than when I first released my article a few days ago. Uh, so that's super exciting, and I'm going to be talking about what I'm up to, what I've been thinking about Jewishly, um, giving some tips of uh, cool art that's going on uh, in Jewish Canada and talking about our podcast. And then uh, my more personal nachas uh, really feels like a nachas to me. I don't know if any of your kids watch the Rugrats or if they're too young for that, but they're doing a reboot and they just cast Henry Winkler as the Ooh, voice of the Zadie, which the is fonts. so amazing. amazing. And just warmed my heart because Rugrats is one of my favorite shows growing up. Very cool. And who can who can forget their Hanukkah episode? Hanukkah and the Passover one is yeah. great too. Classics. We should absolutely revisit those and do a... Uh, a moment-by-moment moment commentary, uh, DVD Honestly, commentary for that uh, DVD. That I had it on VHS, there, but... You know, there was no VHS commentary track. Fair Come enough. Um, yeah, I want to talk about art, actually, oh. uh, also. Um, there's an artist that I know and I like. Uh, his name is Hillel Smith. Um, the Canadian Connection, he's, he's an American. The Canadian Connection is... Uh, he actually did a mural this past year at the MNJCC in downtown Toronto. Um, so you can go and check that out um, as part of... Uh, there was like a Jewish mural fest that was going around, like... Recently? Uh, uh, this past year across, like, North America. Oh. Yeah, so he's cool. a big muralist. Um, but he released a little while ago this set of, like, Parsha posters. And I bought a set, and we're at the beginning of the Parsha year, so every week at the Shabbat table, I get to pull out the one for the week, and we get to talk about it and discuss them. And and they are gorgeous. They're amazing. And, uh, like, if you look at this week's, right, it says Parsha Noach. I'm, uh, we're looking at it right now. Mm. You can check him out, and we can put a link in the thing, right? The word Noach is there. Yeah. You see the ark. That's you see smart. the like the the you know the drop the of water is the letters yeah and but the letters actually show up like the entire name of the, the thing shows up um in the uh poster and it's a commentary on the po- on the parsha in some meaningful way oh, wow that one's a camel and it also says Chaye Sarah yeah, right? yeah and yeah. that's Rivka like that's for wow. Parsha Chaye Sarah you should that's absolutely cool. go check them out every week there's a different uh, one uh, he has an amazing Instagram he so has where, where uh, can they find it if they um, want to look it up hillelsmith.info um, we'll put a link in the uh, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes and all of that stuff and uh, we will uh, you know you should check it out he has a lot of other really great Jewish art um, I'm a big fan of his uh, but Specifically, this time is around as the Parsha posters. Our word of wisdom this week comes to us from Rabbi Aubrey Glazer, who is a relational consultant for JLive Montreal and the director of Panui in San Francisco. Now, the angels got a fiddle and the devils got a harp. Every soul is like a minnow. Every mind is like a shark. I've opened every window, but the house, the house is dark. Just say uncle, then it's simple. What happens to the heart? To recognize these words, the lyrics of the late, great Montreal poet, bard, singer, songwriter Leonard Cohen are sitting with me in an unusual way as I traverse the deep seas of aqua theology this week as we dive deep into those waters in Parshat Noah. And I've always 
wondered what was going through Noah's mind when he was deep inside of the ark. And it struck me that in this posthumous recording of Leonard Cohen's, it's always on my mind, that the house, the house is dark, is definitely a place where Noah was sitting inside of that ark. This was the house of the future of humanity, even though he was only with his family. It was a very dark place. And the most amazing thing that emerges from me that brings us always back to Leonard Cohen is trying to understand the command when Noah is told to build the ark and to ensure that inside of the ark itself there was one space for a tzohar. The instruction specifically of the construction says, tzohar ta'asela teva, that when you make this ark, Noah, you need to make sure that you make a space for a tzohar make a space for a light opening. And I've always been struck by this peculiar word, especially in light of the powerful tradition of interpretation that comes from the charismatic mystical leader of the Jewish uh, project of renewal called Hasidism, the Baal Shem Tov. He reads this one word in such an intriguing way. He says that ultimately that we have to make not just a teva, um, that is an ark, that has a tzohar. And there's a double entendre that he plays with here that I really love. The way that he reads it is not just to be read as it says in the text on the pshat level, on the contextual level. That is to say simply, when you're constructing the ark, Noah, make sure that the ark, the teva itself, has an opening for light, kind of like a skylight, if you will. But the Baal Shem Tov takes it in a different direction, reads the double entendre, and says that um, every single word that is a teva is also the same um, the same word that's used in Hebrew for ark. So every word should have an opening for light. Can you imagine what that would be like to be able to traverse through the seas of uh, our daily lives, all of our text messages, all of social media, which really becomes kind of like a sea. Imagine if there was an opening for light in every word that we were sharing with each other. Think about the world that we create and the world that we destroy through our words themselves. And so in many ways, it brings me back to Leonard Cohen's words that everyone knows that there's a blaze of light in every word. It doesn't matter which one you heard, the cold or the broken hallelujah. And so my hope and my advice for this week as we traverse the deep seas of social media where we have the power to create worlds and to destroy worlds, that we find a blaze of light in every word at Sohar Ta'ase Lateva. Let's find the light and channel it to bring a little bit more hope and a little bit more illumination into a darkened world so that we can create a world based on this opening to a hallelujah. Have a great week. And uh, Rabbi Aubrey is actually hosting a uh, Leonard Cohen yurt site with the yurt site this week uh, coming up on, I believe, uh, Tuesday, October 12th. Uh, Aubrey, tell us about this yurt site event that you're hosting. Thanks, Avi. We want to come together to celebrate the fifth anniversary of Leonard Cohen's passing, his yurt site in Hilula. I'm going to be in conversation with Chazan Basia Schachter, the lead singer of Pharaoh's Daughter and of Romamu Brooklyn, as well as music therapist Aaron Lightstone, the founder of Jaffa Road, and Professor uh, Marsha Pally, whose new book on Leonard Cohen is very exciting, called From This Broken Hill, I Sing to You, God, Sex, and Politics in the Work of Leonard Cohen. So join us. It's on Eventbrite. We would love to 
have you there to be gathering to sing the cold and broken hallelujah, to converse and share about the ways that Leonard Cohen's lyrics and songbook continue to inspire us with our global gathering of community online together. Thank you. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's on Eventbrite and uh, online, and uh, we will hopefully convene for then. Tuesday at uh, 8 p.m. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for Thursday, October 7th. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our new page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour. And you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all our episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice. It helps immensely for people to try to find uh, the podcast. I actually just have, I know there's a little coda, two-hour credits, but I just had somebody randomly uh, tell me that they moved to Montreal uh, recently and they were we're looking on Spotify for like podcasts to listen in your neighborhood and Bonjour High popped up as like what? a podcast that like you might be interested in That's and they're awesome. totally randomly. I love um, that. So that happens when you leave comments and ratings on these platforms. It's a big deal. Um, and on that note, I'm Avi Feingold. And I'm Ilana Zakon. Okay.